Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. continuing this morning a sermon series in the book of Exodus, and uh, if you've been with us through this series, you know that we've been seeing over and over again, or our claim over and over again, has been that this, the Exodus story isn't just a story uh, way back then and there for those people, uh, those Israelites led out of slavery in Egypt, but it's really our story. Uh, it's the story of God's people uh, set free from sin and slavery and on a journey to their inheritance. In this sermon, this is a, a, one of my favorite passages in Exodus. Uh, do you remember when you were a kid? Remember in school, or those of you who are still in school, when you did your math homework, and uh, the teacher would tell you you could check your work because the answers were in the back of the book? You remember that? Like the odd numbers would be the answers in the back of the book? Well, this is one of those passages where the answer is in the back of the book. Paul uh, references this exact passage in the New Testament. Right? Sometimes the Old Testament seems strange to us, and we go, man, what are all these weird stories about... Uh, you know, already we've seen plagues and death and uh, grumbling against God and all this. What does this have to do with us? And we're going to see in, in this story, this incredible story where uh, in the midst of his people's anger and grumpiness and grumbling at him, God provides water from them miraculously from a rock. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the rock was Christ. So Paul there in the back of the book does it for us. He shows us how the Old Testament connects into the New but if you're anything like me, sometimes in those math classes, you'd look up the, back, the answer in the back and you go, man, I'm not sure how they got that answer, but I'm going to go back and I'm going to edit it because I know it's right. And sometimes that's how it seems to us. You're, man, I don't know how the apostles got there as far as finding the symbolism that they find in the Old Testament, but it must be true. And our hope is that as we look at this passage this morning, we'll see how it's true. We'll see how God's story connects uh, the front of the book to the back of the book, the Old Testament to the New. And so if you would, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. 
You know, one, thing's, one of the things that happens as you preach uh, and as we read together through an entire book of the Bible is you start to see some of the connections, right? If you read these stories one at a time, uh, you can miss some of the themes. But reading it uh, straight through, you see these themes that develop, not only themes of God's incredible power and His love and His grace, but let's be honest, also the pattern of the incredibly annoying whining of His people. Right? I mean, when you read them cons- you know, consecutively like this, you start to get a little bit tired of the people of Israel. They seem to always find something to complain about to God. First, they're complaining that God's not rescuing them, and then He rescues them. Then they get out and they complain that they're thirsty, and God provides water for them to drink. Then they complain that they're hungry, and God provides miraculous food for them to eat. It literally rains bread on them. And then the very next chapter, they're thirsty again. But do they think to themselves, oh, I'm so thirsty. Oh, hey, guys, good news. Remember when we were enslaved and God freed us? And then remember when we were thirsty just a couple weeks ago and then God made water for us and then we were hungry and then he gave us food? It's going to be okay. God's going to provide again. No, they don't do that. Instead, they grumble and they quarrel and they accuse Moses and they accuse God of having abandoned them and left them for dead in the middle of the wilderness. They have short memories. They're constantly grumbling against God. This word grumbling uh, is an important word. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's repeated over and over again in the book of Exodus. I like the English word grumbling because it's one of those words that sounds like what it is, right? To grumble. You're agitated. You're upset. And the people of Israel are constantly grumbling against God. What's going on with all of this grumbling? What's going on with Moses, the author, highlighting this constant grumbling? Well, I believe what he's doing is he's drawing us into the story uh, to help us see ourselves in this story. I think my annoyance at the people of Israel is honestly really my annoyance at my own unbelief, at my own sour attitude towards God. If you can imagine yourself walking into a a room and seeing a piece of art hanging on the wall, and you say, man, that is a painting of an ugly person. That is a hideous-looking person. Why would somebody paint that person? And you get closer and closer to the picture, and you go, oh, no, that's a mirror, (laughs) right? It's just reflecting myself back at me. And I think that's something of how Exodus works here. It draws you in. You start to get annoyed at them, and then you realize, oh, no, they are me, and I am them. The author of Hebrews draws a direct connection uh, between this story and his, own, and his own audience. Quoting Psalm 95, he says, Do not harden your hearts as you did in the wilderness at Massa and at Mirabah. Right? He calls them you. Right? You, this church living by faith in Christ after his coming, he calls them the same you that was in the wilderness that complained against God. We do live our lives in a wilderness. The wilderness in the scriptures is a place of testing. It's a place of deprivation. It's a place where you don't have what you need to survive. We think of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness towards making bread or making water. We think of Israel's testing here in this wilderness. To be in the wilderness, to be in the desert, is to need things that you don't have. It's to be aware of what you lack in your life. And we do live in a wilderness. We live 
in a place of lack, a place where we want things that we cannot get for ourselves. Life in general is a wilderness. 2020 has certainly been a wilderness, right? A time of of wandering around and wondering how are we ever going to get through it? How are we ever going to get those basic things that we need, things like health and peace and security and stability? Things like uh, our jobs and our economy and our schools. How are we going to get those things that we think that we need, the things that we can't live without? All of life is a wilderness, but this year especially has been a wilderness. And what we see in the people of Israel is something that, that I think is fascinating that we see in ourselves. Psychologists call this a negativity bias, a negativity bias. What they mean by that is this. Uh, that negative experiences tend to stick out more to us than positive experiences, right? That the cruel words that we hear stick in our minds and memories and hearts more than the kind words that we hear. I bet if I were to ask you to think about uh, your childhood, each of us can remember cruel words spoken to us, perhaps by a family member, maybe by a peer, maybe by a coach, and I bet if you, you know, if you closed your eyes and I asked you to remember some cruel words spoken to you, I bet you would not only think of them like that, but you would feel them again. You would feel what it felt like to, to be called those names or to hear those things. In a way that's much more visceral and real than if I were to ask you to go back and remember something encouraging that was said to you or something kind that someone said to you, that the negative tends to stick with us. It's something about our human nature that we tend to focus on the hurtful as opposed to the pleasurable, the disappointing as opposed, as opposed uh, to the hopeful. You can think about it in terms of 2020. Uh, how many times have you said to someone, man, this has been such a terrible year. It's been such a hard year. I have. How many times did you stop in 2019 and to say, you know what, it's actually been an awesome year? 2018, 2017, 2000, you know, any of them. Right? We focus, our minds go to our trials more than they go uh, towards the blessings and towards what's good. I think this is something uh, that speaks to us, something that's you know, verified by psychological research. That as Christians, we would say this, this makes sense in a fallen world. Part of living in a fallen world is that we are scarred. That what the adverse experiences of our lives leave a mark on us. Part of our doubt and unbelief and faithlessness is that we tend to believe that those things are more real than the good in our lives, and so we become grumblers. C.S. Lewis tells a story in The Great Divorce. Uh, it's one of my favorite books. It's, uh, he tells an allegory of a, a bus trip of a group of people from uh, this kind of metaphorical version of hell on towards heaven. And uh, Lewis, or the narrator, sees a woman uh, that's there in hell, and he's surprised that she's there. He said she seems just like a normal, ordinary old woman, except for maybe a little bit of a grumbler, right? She seems normal enough, but a little bit sour in her attitude. And so he asks uh, his guide, George MacDonald, he asks, why would somebody uh, be under God's judgment uh, just for being a bit of a complainer. And McDonald answers this. He says, is she really a grumbler or is she only a grumble? The main character asks, how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? He says, it begins with a grumbling mood and you yourself still distinct from it, perhaps even criticizing it. 
and yourself in a dark hour may will that mood and embrace it. You can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. What Lewis points out, I think, is in keeping with what Exodus is telling us here, that grumbling uh, isn't just a sin, but it somehow gets in touch with sin itself uh, because it's rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in a fundamental distrust in the goodness of God. It echoes the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, denying God's goodness and all that he had given them and focused on the one thing that they lack. And it plays itself out over and over again in our lives. So how, living in the wilderness of this world, can we overcome grumbling? How can we meet lack, meet the hard things and the trials in our lives without being given over to grumbling? How can we receive, as we sang earlier, these tidings of comfort and joy that are offered to us in the gospel and let that win out uh, over our grumbling? Well, let's look at where we see that in this text. Over and over, uh, the author's been using the phrase grumbling to describe God's people's attitude towards him. But here, he uses grumble, but then he shifts to a more serious word. Verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses. Quarreled with Moses. This word quarrel uh, is usually used as a legal complaint in the Old Testament. So this is, it's going from a general sense of complaint to a legal accusation against Moses, saying, you have left us here and you are on trial. You are on trial. Our life is on your head. You are guilty of our blood if we die here. They're coming to him uh, like a prosecutor bringing a case against Moses. We know that because when Moses goes to complain to God about it, he doesn't just complain about their grumbling. He's done that before. God, what am I going to do with these people? But instead, he says, they are ready to stone me. Right? He says, look, they have elevated from a grumble to a lawsuit, and they found me guilty, and now they're ready to stone me. They're ready to put me to death because of what's happened to me, or because of what's happened to them, because of their thirst. And Moses understands that there's more going on here than them quarreling with him. Look at what he says in verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? Moses understood that their, their complaint against him, their legal attack against him, went beyond just charges against him. Right? It went to a very trial of God himself. Right? That's ultimately where we go when we're disappointed in life, when we're angry in life, when we're hurt in life. We don't just look at the people who've wronged us. We look through them and past them to the God who's allowed this to happen, to the God who brought this pain into our lives. And Moses gets that. He says, they're quarreling with me, but really the one who's on trial here is their God, the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who's demonstrated his love and faithfulness to them over and over again. They're really bringing God into trial here. And we do this. We blame God uh, for what goes wrong in our lives. We blame him for the small things, the minor inconveniences, the relational hurts, the daily stuff of living in a fallen world. And we blame him for the big things, things like cancer and injustice and war and suffering and famine in the world. 
right? We blame God for the pain of our lives. And God's people are blaming Moses and they're blaming God and they've rendered their verdict that God is in fact guilty. There's a fascinating play uh, called The Sign of Jonah by Gunther Rutenborn. If you didn't know, he's German. Gunther Rutenberg, that's a German person. Um, he was a Lutheran minister uh, who lived uh, during and after the Second World War. And in this play, he tells the story of what happened as the German people began to understand what happened in the Holocaust. Uh, when the stories began to leak out from the concentration camps to the villages and into the cities. And they began to ask themselves the questions, how could this happen? Who's to blame for this? And so first they go to the soldiers and the guards who executed this. And they blame them and they say, no, we were just following orders. And so they blame the generals and the leaders over them. And they say, no, no, you can't blame us. It was the people above us. It was the politicians and it was even Hitler himself. And so everybody is passing the weight of this sin up the food chain until finally they come to a place in their trial, and they're seeking for the guilty party, where they realize that the only guilt that can be assigned is everyone passes the blame up the food chain, that eventually it lands at the throne of God. That eventually uh, their blaming of someone turns to the, as everybody goes up the food chain, it ends up at the top. It ends up with God himself, and they put God on trial. God himself sentenced and judged by humanity and found guilty. And we see this uh, going on in our text. Let's look back at this passage. This is an incredibly dramatic scene. So God's people are about to stone Moses in their judgment of God. And so Moses cries out to God, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And so the Lord says to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with, with, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. So here's the scene. God, uh, God's people attack Moses. He goes away. He cries out to God, and God gives him these instructions. He says, take the staff in your hand. Now remember, the staff was a symbol of Moses' authority. It was the staff. Uh, that he used to demonstrate his power to Pharaoh. It was this staff that turned uh, the water of the Nile to blood. It was this staff that struck the Red Sea and divided it in half. This was a sign of Moses' power. And in the ancient world, uh, rulers used rods or staffs as a sign of their power. Right? It's why when you see pictures of kings in the ancient world in their thrones, usually they have a scepter in their hand or a rod. Uh, Roman governors, uh, when rendering a verdict, would actually hit the person uh, with their staff as a sign of judgment, as a sign that they were under their authority. Right? And so when Moses takes up the staff, it's a sign that he is the ruler, that he's the one who's been given not just human authority to judge, but remember, he's been given God's authority to judge. This was a, a, a symbol that God's people had seen him do incredible acts of divine power in judgment. And so God says, take the staff in your hand and then put the elders behind you and go pass before the people. So they come with this symbol of, of power and judgment. And uh, so Moses' right to rule and to judge 
And then essentially with a jury behind him, uh, with another group of witnesses to what's just happened. And they're told to go and approach the people. Imagine you're one of these people who's been grumbling and quarreling with Moses, and now all of a sudden, here he comes with the sign of God's power, with a jury behind him. You'd probably be thinking, "Uh uh-oh, right? Maybe we spoke too quickly when we sought to put Moses and God on trial. Because the clear image would be that there was going to be a trial, but it wasn't going to be Moses who was judged, and it wasn't going to be God who was judged, but it was going to be they who were judged. And yet God says, Moses, pass before the people, right? So don't stop at them, keep going past them, and go to the rock. The people must have been thinking some relief. Phew, he's not coming right for us. And so he goes to the rock, and then... God says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. This passage, a lot is crammed into these little words. I will stand before you. Uh, this, This phrase, to stand before someone, is never used of two equals facing each other. Uh, It's not used, the narrow use of this phrase, to stand before someone, is for an inferior to stand before a superior. We still have this in English, right? If you, uh, you, you stand before a judge if you get called in. A judge doesn't stand before you, right? You get called in to stand before the president. The president doesn't stand before you, right? When two people, even if they're facing face to face, the one who has power is the one that the other one stands before. This is the only place, uh, to my knowledge, that this is found, uh, speaking of God, That God himself says, the one who has a right to call the entire world to stand before him, vulnerable, says, no, go and I'll stand before you there on the rock. And you take the staff and you strike the rock. I'll stand before you and you take the wrath of divine power and judgment and you strike the rock. And out of the rock will flow living water to quench your thirst. The God who has a right to call the entire world to judgment instead takes onto himself the blow of judgment. Instead takes onto himself the pain and vulnerability of his people's grumbling. At the end of the play, the sign of Jonah, the people say, finding their verdict on God, their their verdict rendered, they say, let God come and become a human being. Let him enter into this broken and painful world that he's made. Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him be deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty. He himself must die and suffer the agonies of losing a son. When at last he dies, he will be disgraced and ridiculed. The force of that is that you're supposed to realize, oh, he has. Right, that the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of God and the person of Christ in the manger, is Him coming and taking His place before us. Not over us in judgment, but among us. It's Him taking His place on the rock in order to be stricken, in order to take onto Himself the full weight of human sin, the full weight of divine judgment. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God entered into our world. 
that God entered into our wilderness and he took the blow of divine wrath. And so we see what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 10 when he tells us that the rock was Christ. That when God stood on the rock and took the blow, and when living water flowed out of that rock to satisfy the thirst of his people, that that was Christ. That Christ is the one who stands before the Father's judgment, who takes the wrath of God in order to provide for a thirsty world. Jesus says in John chapter 7, Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Jesus has come to me, the living rock, who will provide living water. When Jesus cries out on the cross, I thirst, I thirst, I'm thirsty. The one who is living water gets thirsty. And he does it for us. He does it so that, as the author of Hebrews says, we know that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. Right? He understands life in the wilderness. He understands our hunger and our thirst and our pain. He knew it so that we could only ever know living water, living and lasting water to satisfy our thirst and our deepest needs. Well, what does Jesus say that we have to do in the midst of this? To live in the midst of a wilderness world without giving in to grumbling. How do we do it? John chapter 7. Just come and drink. The only thing necessary is to come to Jesus and drink. To come and say that there is no other place that I can be satisfied. There is no other water that can quench my thirst. There is nothing else that can satisfy my need. Jesus, you alone have the living water to quench every thirst. Let's come to him now and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you tasted thirst so that we could taste satisfaction. That your body was broken as the rock was struck. Lord, that as blood and water flowed from your broken side, it is the water to satisfy a thirsty world. Lord, we thank you that you have not uh, provided for us just a little trickle of water, but that you have provided for us streams in the desert, that you have provided for us a fountain of living water. Beyond that, by your Spirit, you promise us that we actually will become a fountain of living water in a thirsty world, that as we drink of you, that from us will flow out living water for neighborhoods and schools and cities that are dying of thirst. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to come to you. We confess that, that we get grumbly ourselves, that uh, we forget your grace and your goodness. We complain against you. Lord, lead us back. Lead us back to the fountain of living water. Help us to drink deeply and to be satisfied. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.